Light. Definitely one of man's modern marvels. And statistically, one of the safest ways to travel. And when you do think of airline disasters, you may think of hijackings or crashes, bombings, many things. But most of these have one thing in common. They take place when an airplane is in flight. But did you know the deadliest airline disaster in aviation history happened on the runway, on the ground? And that's what we're going to talk about today. Airline disaster at Tenerife today on Keto and Crime and Thought Crime Mystery History. Let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Thought Crime and Keto and Crime. As you heard from our introduction, we're going to cover the deadliest airline disaster in aviation history. It happened on the ground in Tenerife, Canary Islands, and we're going to talk about it today. March 27, 1977. I am going to divide this into a couple of parts. It's going to be background, part one, the actual day and the disaster itself, part two, and the investigation, part three. So, let's get in. Oh, little housekeeping. If you do want to support the channel because I am heavily demonetized due to the type of content that I do, I have links below to my Patreon, Cash Out, PayPal. Any little bit helps, even a dollar a month helps. It's never required, always appreciated. But the most important thing you can do is hit that like button for the YouTube algorithm. If you do that for me, that helps. Leave a comment, leave a question. I try to respond or at least acknowledge all of them. So I really appreciate all you guys do. But let's get into it. March 27th, 1977. Two Boeing 747 jumbo jet passenger jets. These were actually fairly new in uh, 1977. Uh, mainly we had been using regular jets of the, of the lower 720, 730 grade. And jumbo jets, especially ones as powerful as the 747, were very unique and a lot of airports and airstrips had not yet accustomed their air traffic controllers to actually taking care of them being able to accommodate them because there were things that they could do that smaller jets couldn't do and then vice versa there were also things that the smaller jets could do that these big jets couldn't so air traffic controllers were literally having to learn as they go and aviation is one of the few things much like shipping where there are international laws and international cooperation where it comes to regulations. And what we're going to see today is that the Spanish air traffic controllers made some mistakes, as did the pilots of both planes. And we're going to look into that as to why this may have happened. And you've seen huge reform in the area of air regulations since this disaster. So the two, the two jets involved in this was KLM, which was a charter flight from Holland, part of the Royal Dutch Airline, flight 4805, and Pan Am, Pan American flight 1736, which was a commercial flight starting in LAX in Los Angeles, going to Kennedy in New York, where it picked up both a new crew and uh, new passengers and was heading to Grand Canary Island, as was the KLM flight. Now, Grand Canary Islands are 
an island chain off of north off the northwest coast of Africa that has been under Spanish control for a very long time. And that as a as per that, it was the Spanish air traffic control force that had control of the island and its air traffic towers. Now, much like the Bahamas or uh, Ibiza or any other tropical destination, Jamaica, Aruba, no, <laughs> any of those very tropical paradises, Grand Canary Islands are no different. So it's a very popular vacation spot. So everyone on these flights were going there for a holiday. So they, the attitude on board of the, both of these planes were quite jovial quite happy so with this is what makes it doubly sad is that these were people that were on vacation and having a good time but both planes were set to land at Grand Canary Airport the main airport on the Canary Islands but one of the many Canary Island Liberation Forces decided to plant a bomb there they, they had long fought a war to free the Canary Islands from Spanish control and they planted a bomb at the Grand Canary Airport, which did explode inside a terminal, injuring one person. Well, as you can imagine, they had to shut that air, airport down and divert all the air traffic that was heading in to some of the smaller regional air, airports and airstrips, among them Los Rodeos Airport in the mountains around on the smaller island of Tenerife, Grand Canary. Now, this was a very small regional airport. They had one airstrip, and they had a taxiway. So they had one runway right next to it. They had a long taxiway, and they had little small landing pads and taxiways that connected them. Think of an interstate exit with little strips coming off. That's kind of what their, their airstrip looked like, and I'll put a picture of it right here for those of you on video. For those of you listening via podcast, if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll be able to see it. I'll also put a link to some information about it in the show notes down below. Now, Los Rodeos, now renamed Tenerife Airport since this tragedy, was near the city of Tenerife and the island of Tenerife, on the island of Tenerife. So, it normally handled about six to eight small regular sized planes like jet passenger jets or little Cessnas little little private planes that landed so it was in no way equipped to handle large 747s that was a lot of the problem here it did not have ground radar which is which is important to kind of for the air traffic controllers can tell where a plane is on the ground now for those of you that don't know air air pilots do not fly planes by looking out the window and seeing what's ahead of them like you would a car a truck or anything else they actually fly by means of radar and by taking instructions from air traffic controllers which usually work for the federal government of whatever country they're landing in and there's very specific rules so all having the best air radar and ground radar so you can see all planes on the ground and in the air at all time is very important. Well, this was such a small landing strip, it did not have ground radar. And that would come in to playing a very important part in this whole tragic accident. Now, another uh, major incident with uh, 
Tenerife is that it is about 6,000 feet above sea level. And the entire island is taken up by a volcano. Now, as a result, it has very unique weather. That is, it can be sunny one minute and then cloud cover can roll in very quickly. And as a result of the cloud cover with the hot steam and everything coming off this volcano, it can make very thick fog. So on this day, March 27th, the weather was very clear throughout all of the Canary Islands, and that's the reason it, the decision was made at Grand Canary Airport to st stir everything over to Tenerife or to Los Rodeos. And they thought that it would probably clear most of the day so that the control tower would have help, even though they didn't have ground radar, they could easily see the planes on the ground. Also, it was a Sunday, so there was a skeleton crew at the airport. So there was two air traffic controllers where normally there would be six to eight, even in a small one. So keep that in mind as well. Upon receiving their orders, the flight crew of Pan Am 1736 actually requested not to divert to Los Rodeos. They actually requested to circle Grand Canera Airport until officials had cleared it. However, a bomb, a second bomb threat had come in, so they were having to calm the entire airport for what they thought might be a second bomb. And as a result, they feared that the Pan Am flight might not have enough fuel to circle. They had enough fuel for a little over two hours, according to their flight crew, but the traffic authority on the ground feared that they might not have enough, so they did order them to divert to Los Rodeos, and they did. Now let's talk about both of our flights, shall we? KLM Flight 4805, as I said, was a commercial jet that had been chartered that day from KLM, also part of Royal Dutch Airlines, for a Holland tour group that was going to the Grand Canary. So, But it was still under the command of a KLM or Royal Dutch crew. It was a 747-206B with the code name Rhine. KLM 4805 was commanded by KLM or Royal Dutch Airlines most veteran captain by the name of Jacob Van Zanten. He was age 50. He had over 11,000, almost 12,000 flight hours, oh, the majority of which were done in smaller jets, unfortunately. He, but he did have over 15,000 flight hours in 747s. In fact, Captain Van Sant was su Van Satten was such a prominent member of KLM's uh, pilot pool that he was featured in all their advertisements. I'll put a picture of that here. He was also their chief trainer for the 747. So when it came to 747s, Captain Van Zanten was the man at KLM. However, he had spent the majority of the last few years training other pilots, and this was his first actual commercial flight in a couple, in several months. So he was could have possibly been a little rusty. I don't want to say that. I would think that hopefully if you're a pilot, it's kind of like flying a, you know, riding a bike. But there is issues with pilots that have spent a long time on a flight simulator, which is how all training takes place. In a flight simulator, if anything goes wrong, you just reset the simulator and start over. No one gets hurt. No one dies. But when it comes to a real-life scenario, we know that's not 
the same. So he may have also been suffering from something known as trainer syndrome, which we'll talk about a little bit later, where the lines between real life and simulator were a little bit blurred for him. So he was the captain. He also had first officer Klaus Muers, who was age 42. He had 9,200 9, hours of flight. Only 543 of those were on the 747. And you had flight engineer William Schrader, age 48, 17,000 flight hours. And, but still, only 500 of those were, were in a 747. So you had a fairly inexperienced crew and somebody that had just come off a long stint on simulators in this cockpit. So you have to remember that. It was carrying 14 total crew members. So there were about 11 others, you know, flight attendants, other people on the, on the flight, as well as 235 passengers, including 52 children. Most of them were Dutch, but you did have four Germans, two Austrians, two Americans, and you also had one native to the Grand Canary Island who, when the plane did touch down at Tenerife, made the decision to disembark and go home and take land transport home from there. So she was lucky. But that was the KLM crew. Now let's talk about Pan American Flight 1736. Pan Am Flight 1736, as I said, was also a 747. Model 7, Boeing 747-121. It had the call name Clipper Victor. It has, it had a, also had a veteran crew. In the cockpit as captain was Captain Victor Grubbs. He was age 56, had over 21,000 flight hours and around 500 in a 747. As I said, 747s were very new at this time. First officer, Robert Bragg, age 39, over 10,000 flight hours. He had 2,700 hours in a 747. Flight engineer, George Warnes, age 46, 15,000 flight hours, over almost 600 in a 747. There were also 13 flight attendants, 380 passengers, mostly retirees, two children, and 14 extra had boarded in New York where the crew had also changed. So another crew actually took this out of Los Angeles at LAX and then a new crew boarded at New York because there is a limit to flight hours, much like with truckers and driving hours. Very interesting thing about Pan Am and this plane. Pan Am in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was the premier American airline. Every Young girl wanted to be a Pan Am flight attendant, a Pan Am girl. You know, very, very popular in both pop culture and mainstream. Uh, but also had one of the worst records for safety of any airline ever. They were the most hijacked, the most crashes. In fact, this very uh, 747 had actually went into service for Pan Am in 1970, and in August 2nd of 1970, it was actually hijacked between JFK Airport in New York and the International Airport in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and was diverted by its hijackers to Havana, Cuba. So this was one of the first 747s ever hijacked, which just leads you to, believe, leads you to know just the kind of precarious 
history that Pan Am had with safety overall. So anyway, that's where we stood on March 27th, 1977 with both of these planes. So the KLM flight had taken off from Amsterdam, Pan Am flight from Los Angeles with a stopover in New York. Now they were both heading to Gran Canaria Airline Airport in the Gran Canary Islands. At about 1.15 p.m. that Sunday afternoon, the bomb, the bomb exploded and another bomb threat came in. And eight people in all were injured during that explosion. Uh, one in the initial explosion and eight and seven were discovered thereafter. And all tra air traffic was diverted to Los Rodeos, even though the airline crew of Pan Am actually called in a request to circle Gran Canera until it was free to land. They were told no, and everyone was diverted to Los Rodeos on Tenerife. As we had discussed earlier, the airstrip at Tenerife was one runway, one large taxiway, and little exits in between. And I know I inserted a picture above I'm, uh, before. I'm also going to insert one here just so that you can can remember that because it does become important as the disaster goes on. But what they were doing because they had so many different planes, in fact five large 747s had been diverted to Los Rodeos from the airport on the ma major island, they were ha literally having to land them and park them on the taxiway. So the taxiway parallel to the actual runway were packed with large jumbo jets. And it was going to be pretty much the same for, K for the KLM and the Pan Am flight as they approached. Now, because that taxiway was used up with parked planes, it could not be used for its intended purpose of taxiing. So all the planes that were taking off that day were told to what most people in the industry call backtracking, which is simply go the wrong way up the runway, do a 180 degree turn and get into takeoff position that way. So that's what all these planes that were taking off from here were being instructed to do because of the parked planes, the taxiways were not usable. And once both KLM and Pan Am flight started to approach, they had the runway cleared and they did instruct both of the planes to land. KLM flight landed just before 2, 8, 2 p.m. that day, followed by the Pan Am flight. And they did taxi down the uh, runway and take positions on the taxiway waiting with the other planes. The KLM plane radioed the tower asking for per permission for their passengers to disembark and go inside the airport terminal so they wouldn't get bored. Permission for this was granted and they actually sent a bus out to the KLM plane to bus the passengers to the terminal. However, when Pan Am made the same request, they were told that the terminal was now full and that their passengers would have to remain on the plane. In response to this, the flight attendants on the Pan Am plane did go through the cabin and open the doors and the windows, allowing some fresh air in. They gave complimentary drinks, whatever they could do to keep their passengers from having a bad time and therefore not returning to Pan Am. They did what they were supposed to do. After waiting about three hours on the tarmac, they were told that Gran Canera had been cleared to receive passengers. Now, Gran Canera was only about a 25-minute flight from, from Los Rodeos or Tenerife, so it was going to be a fairly short flight. 
both planes still had enough fuel to safely make that flight. However, Captain Van Santen of the KLM flight did order his passengers back into the plane. But then, this is, this is about, you know, several hours later, he did instruct his uh, uh, the crew to refuel the plane. He wanted his plane completely refueled. His Both of his cockpit mates, his crew, did try to argue with him and say that why don't we just refill at Grand Canero, but they said that Captain Van Satten, according to the tower recordings, were, was in kind of a hurry and did not want uh, slow their initial landing at uh, Grand Canero because he was due to pick up more passengers and return to Amsterdam. Both he and his entire crew were getting close to their hour limit, and if he didn't do this quickly, they would have to, KLM would have to pay for overnight accommodation for the crew and the passengers because they wouldn't be able to leave till the next day. So he was in quite a hurry to get to Grand Canera and take off immediately once his passengers there were on board. So he was not playing around. However, he did slow everyone's takeoff from Los Rodeos. In fact, the Pan Am flight was so agitated in the fact they were trapped behind the KLM flight and couldn't get around, and now we're being told he was going to refuel, that they actually radioed the KLM flight and asked Van Satin how long this refueling was going to take. He literally, very curtly said, 35 minutes and immediately essentially hung up on the captain from the Pan Am. So finally after 4 p.m., KLM flight is refueled. They're all ready to go. The air traffic control tower orders the KLM flight to backtrack down the runway and get into takeoff position. Now by this time, the weather has made a, a sudden change as it tends to do in Tenerife and we a thick fog covered the runway, the tower. The There was only a visibility of about 300 meters, which is roughly, you know, the length of two football fields in uh, feet. So you can imagine how bad visibility was. In fact, one of the Pan Am flight attendants commented that survived the crash actually commented that she couldn't even see the second engine from her window in first class. So she said, we're not going anywhere. This is way against Pan Am safety rules to take off in this fog. But they ordered the KLM flight to do their backtracking, turn their 180 degree turn, and get into position to take off. They then immediately ordered the Pan Am flight to follow the KLM down the backtrack on the runway, but then to veer off onto exit three and to wait there for further instructions. Now, there was some confusion in the Pan Am cockpit when they actually radioed back to the air traffic controller asking them, what exit did you say to take, first or third? And air traffic control buzzed back, third, sir, one, two, three, third, sir. So they were absolutely telling them the third exit. However, this was this flight crew's first time at this airport, and they had a small map of the airport, and they were kind of looking at it, feeling out their exits, but because of the low visibility to the fog, they were really having a hard time finding exit three. They also noticed on the map that exit three, and I'm going to insert a small clip here where I kind of go over that. All right, everyone. Here we are, kind of a diagram of the 
runway and taxiways and exits at the uh, Los Rodeos Airport or the Ten uh, Tenerife Airport where this accident happened. All right, as you can see here, there is the taxiway down here. There's what's known as the apron where a lot of planes were parked. Planes were parked all up and down here. And here are the exits, C1, C2, C3, C4. All right, so here's the KLM plane. It had started here, backtracked all the way down, got into flight position, takeoff position right here. Meanwhile, Pan Am was ordered to follow right behind it and exit here at C3. However, as you can tell by the angle of C3 here, they would have had to have performed an almost impossible 148 degree turn to get onto it and then be able to turn back around to get back onto the runway because here it was everything here was filled up with waiting planes. So it would have taken 148 degree angle to get off the runway onto this and then another one to get back onto the runway. Almost impossible for a 747. Now for a smaller uh, plane or even just a single jet instead of a jumbo jet, it would have been very, very possible. So what the mystery is, is no one knows if the fog covering it caused them to miss C3 because here you have C1, you have a small waiting pad, then you have C2, and then right next to it essentially you have C3. So because of the fog, they either misjudged the distance because of the difference in distance between these exits and they missed C3 altogether in the fog or they decided that they couldn't make that turn and that C4, which would have just required a short 45 degree divert and then had enough room to basically turn another small turn to get back onto the runway, was a better option. And that's what no one really knows. If they just missed C3 because of the fog or they decided to disobey orders and go to C4 after all. So anyway, let's get back to our video, shall we? Because exit three required them to do what most airline experts would say is an impossible turn to actually get back on the runway, they may have disobeyed air traffic control's orders and decided to go on to exit four, which to them would just take a small 45 degree angle to get in. So they decided either decided to go to exit four or in the fog, they missed exit three. But in any case, they were still behind KLM's flight when it completed its 180 degree turn and was in takeoff position. The Pan Am flight was still backtracking behind them going to what would turn out to be exit number four. Now, KLM has done their 180 degree turn. They're ready to take off. They radio the air traffic control tower for their air traffic control clearance. Now, this is not takeoff clearance. Air traffic control clearance is just asking for instructions on what to do once they do take off. And they were told that they would go down the runway, take off, and turn right on takeoff. This was their clear path so they wouldn't hit a plane in the air. However, due to radio interference and 
At that time, radio towers operated off what could only be described as walkie-talkie-like. It, um, all for, they were all low frequencies, and they would interfere with each other, giving what is known as a heterodyne effect, which is essentially when two low frequencies merge, it creates a shrill noise and essentially makes conversation almost impossible. Also, the way these things were set up, they could actually hear the conversation of the other planes on the runway. And for example, they could hear the Pan Am conversation with the tower as well. So there was a lot of weird things going on. So while they were receiving their air traffic control clearance, Marin, who was the first officer in the KLM cockpit, actually read those instructions back. After reading it, he said, we are at takeoff, which is industry lingo for we are in takeoff position we are ready to go however recordings from both the black box and the tower would reveal that he was cut off by captain van satin who simply said we're going meaning he was in a hurry and he throttled forward and moved forward on the runway as if he was going to take off however the air traffic controller when when mares read back that they were going to start takeoff, instead of using stop or no, he said okay, and then followed up with a different transmission telling him, stand by for takeoff, I will call you when you are cleared for takeoff. However, at the same time, the Pan Am crew, who was still following them, radioed that they were still on the runway looking for that exit. And their transmission kind of blanked out the tower's, tower's transmission, which left one word audible. Okay. So, based on their previous conversation, the KLM crew honestly thought that they had been cleared for takeoff. The KLM plane is now in full takeoff mode, building up speed and ready to hit that crucial mark when they will jettison into the air. Meanwhile, Pan Am makes another transmission to the tower, telling them they will advise when they are safely on what they thought or what they thought was exit three or exit four, if they had willingly bypassed it because of the turn. But whatever they said, they would advise. Mirrors, who was on first first officer in KLM, overheard that transmission and turned to the captain and said, "Wait, I think Pan Am is still on the runway." He also radioed the tower and said, are they not clear, the Pan American? At which point, instead of waiting for the tower to respond, Captain Van Satin responded with, oh yes, and throttled it forward. I'm beginning not to like this essence. Meanwhile, they have gotten close enough to the Pan Am flight, who is still taxiing down the runway, so they're basically coming at each other nose to nose. They get close enough that the Pan Am crew can actually see the air the plane coming toward them and radio recordings pick up the captain in the pan am flight captain grubb saying there he is when he spotted the klm flight and then he attempted to do a turn a radical turn to get them on the grass and out of the way However, he all, they also picked up Captain Grubb's exasperated voice screaming, and for those of you who don't like profanity, I'm sorry, I'm just reading what the captain of the Pan American flight said. God damn, that son of a bitch is coming. 
And then you heard First Officer Bragg scream, get off, get off, get off, referring to the captain's attempt to make a sharp turn to get the 747 out of the way. However, it didn't work. About that time, the KLM crew sees Pan Am. They cry out, but they're already, in fact, going into takeoff mode. Up they go. But instead of clearing the plane, they strike, their tail section strikes the Pan Am flight right behind the cockpit near first class. The KLM smashes into the American jumbo at 290 kilometers per hour. Small explosion happened in the Pan Am's cockpit or outside the Pan Am's cockpit. Meanwhile, KLM flight remains airborne for just a moment, but then crashes about 400 meters down the runway and completely is engulfed in a fireball. As you can imagine, there were no survivors on the KLM flight. Everyone perished. Now, there were uh, 61 survivors on the Pan American flight, including everybody in the cockpit and several of the flight attendants. However, I do have some clips here of testimonials from survivors that I'm going to play for you. But the majority of the people that survived on Pan Am did so by thinking quickly and going through any opening they saw in the plane. Whether it mostly rips and holes, whether they could get doors open or whatever, they thought quickly and actually risked broken legs, broken necks just to get out of the plane and they began jumping from the plane. Most of them ended up on the left wing and then on the fuselage of the plane, and they all basically had to jump for their lives. Many of them had broken limbs, other scrapes, but there were a few heroes. There was a flight attendant that did not survive herself, but was helping passengers through one of the openings. There was a fireball that immediately took her out once she had saved about 10 passengers. There was also a passenger... Edgar Rideout, who saved about 12 passengers by literally throwing them out on the wing, and then later on when they were out on the fuselage, pushing them off. He just came running through and started pushing people off, and then jumped himself. Um, there was a surviving uh, stewardess, Pat Johnson, who was actually from my, from my hometown in Nashville, Tennessee, that actually pulled one of her flight attendant friends to safety as well through one of the holes, and both her and her friend survived but there were only 61 survivors on that plane and pat johnson is quoted as having said i really thought i was going to go around to the other side of the plane and see 400 other people but it didn't work that way uh, once they had cleared the plane it was consumed with a fireball many people think because the klm was fully fueled it a didn't have, it was too heavy to clear. It might have cleared the Pan Am if it hadn't have been so heavy. And also the amount of fuel that was released when it struck also caused the fireball to be even more vigorous than it was. Now, as I'd said before, I'm going to insert a few clips of survivors so that they can tell you their story. Tyrannus thought, we're, you know, how are we going to get out? We're trapped. The air traffic controllers, LM, they can't find any survivors. Because of the fog, they have no idea that just 450 meters up the runway, the Pan Am Jumbo is also in flames, with hundreds of people still on board. Without a moment's hesitation, 
Jack Ridout immediately sets about helping other passengers. There was raw fuel, and I had it all over me. I was drenched in it. I thought, we got to get these people out of here. So I started just literally slinging people out that door. Meanwhile, Joan Jackson and another flight attendant are trying to escape. I think I must have gone through this hole, and I reached back down and said, Suzanne, give me your hand, and pulled her out, and we found ourselves standing on top of the aircraft. The shattered Pan Am Jumbo can no longer move, but its engines are still running at full power. And I could hear them, the clanging of the metal in there, and they were starting to disintegrate and throw pieces of metal around. There was another explosion, and the flight attendant who had been helping people was killed instantly. Joan and her colleague are still stuck on the roof of the plane. And I thought to myself, we jump, we're going to have broken legs, so we're going to be able to get away from the plane if we have broken legs. But the plane begins to disintegrate beneath them. The fuselage where it had broken was kind of trailing down toward the ground. And I think we all just tried to leap for the ground. And Immediately, as you can imagine, the investigation started with Spain sending its top flight inspectors to Tenerife to find out what happened, as well as both Dutch and American authorities, air marshals and other members of the, uh, of the federal aviation communities in both countries came immediately to inspect and find out what was happening. The majority of the report, after they surveyed the wreckage, because the black box in both planes were, it took a while to find them and they were both damaged when they did. It took them a while to be able to get the recordings of what was actually said in the airplanes. But they were allowed to have the tapes from the air traffic control tower in which all everything we just discussed, the unusual language that was used, the fact that they were doing the very dangerous tactic of having people backtrack down the down the runway were heard. But it was determined, after getting the black box tapes and listening to the flight crew, it was determined that in both cases, both the Pan Am crew and the KLL crew, had, KLM crew had also disobeyed air traffic control orders, which was one of the primary reasons that the accident happened. The majority of the blame by, from Spain and the USA went on the Dutch crew, claiming that Van Satten's tendency to be a control freak and to be in a massive hurry led to things like delaying the takeoff by 35 minutes because he wanted to refuel his plane and therefore allowed bad weather to roll in. It was also suggested that because of the strict hierarchy in the cockpit that his first officer and his engineer, even though they had tried to argue with him, they were quickly silenced by him and that perhaps he was a bit of a control freak. He also flagrantly disregarded tower instructions or did not wait for tower instructions before taking off. And that was obvious on the recordings. The Dutch, of course, had their own take on it. They, they pointed out that the Pan Am crew had either chosen to go to a different 
exit or missed that exit and therefore they were they should have already been out of the way all of this is valid criticism every i think every country and everybody involved you know had had some part to play and the airport was criticized for not having ground radar which would have prevented this you know from ever happening and also that the use of the lower frequency radio had actually blocked out certain communications and so everything just kind of became fuddled. Spain was also criticized for diverting all of the airplanes to a smaller airport that probably couldn't have handled it and so there was a lot of blame to go around. Um, in the end there was a lot of reform uh, on this. Uh, for example, the issue with Van Santen having been on simulators and a training officer almost up until the point he took this flight was reviewed and it was reviewed that no one can go right from simulator to live plane they have to fly as a co-pilot or do some other stuff on a live plane before they are put in charge of one that he probably had what is known as training syndrome where he couldn't separate you know um simulation from real life also um Airlines were asked to lighten up on crews that maxed out their hours and had to be grounded. Evidently, there was a lot of punishment and retribution that came down the line to flight crews that had to be housed and cost the airline money. That was a, you know, a factor in Van Satin's hurry-up effect. Also, all airlines eased the rigid hierarchy in the cockpit that you do have the right to speak up to a superior officer if you feel that superior officer is doing something wrong. So that came about. Also, um, just in general, all landing strips, irregardless, regardless of size, are now outfitted with ground radar. Uh, there are more stringent regulation when it comes to fog. They will usually not land or take off planes now in dense fog of any kind. So a lot of things have changed since this disaster. This has still the deadliest airline disaster in aviation history. Over 500 people died. And as a result, it will forever be, you know, in history books. It's taught in any type of pilot training. They talk about this event. And as they should, it was a terrible accident that could have been prevented. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, it was not something I was aware of. I was actually looking for another airline disaster to go over, uh, a bombing, and found this and decided this was much more interesting. So I thought we would go over it. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back soon with more, new, more true crime. Please, if you get a chance, support the channel below. If not, like, comment, share, subscribe. Until next time. Keto Comic.